0: A question that sometimes arises for Dhamma practitioners in the West is over the language that uh, the forest Ajans use when talking about the training of the mind and meditation. <coughs> sometimes you'll hear the term uh, that we practice to destroy the mental defilements, the Kilesa, the asawa and the kalesa. And when we use a word such as destroy, for some people who are new to Buddhism or new to the practice, find it brings up visions of Aggression and violence and conflict. Perhaps they already have had enough of that from living in the world, watching news, engaging with other people in society, competing for things, uh, sometimes rivaling others, disagreeing with others, various kinds of conflict. (coughs) So they already have fair amount of negativity in their mind and then when they hear the word to destroy and defilements seems to add to that and can bring up negative perceptions towards the practice of meditation or buddhism in general but those teachers are speaking directly and pointing to the truth about the practice and are only echoing the words of the Buddha if you read the suttas you'll sometimes come across the Buddha talking about practice and how we are practicing to destroy the kilesas as opposed to simply subdue them or reduce them on the way to destroying them, we do subdue them and reduce them, but we are ultimately aiming for them to be completely eradicated. So the Buddha might use, <laughs> paint a picture like uh, destroy the defilements, just as a farmer ploughs the field, and the heavy blade of the plough turns the earth and destroys any roots of grass or weeds in the earth so that the field is ready to be sown with whatever crop you are aiming to cultivate. So the aim is to completely remove Kilesas, which are seen as the cause of suffering, mental qualities that produce suffering as a result, to be completely eradicated from the mind to achieve the goal of the practice. when we come into the robes and pass through ordination ceremony, we are um, part of the instruction is that we're instructed to develop, cultivate the path for the ending of suffering, for the realization of Nibbana, to develop true knowledge and vision of the way things are, and to cultivate uh, sila and morality, For sila brings the benefit of supporting the arising of samadhi. The, uh, the preceptor will say, Sila paripavita samati mahapala hoti mahani sangso. It brings forth great fruit, great benefit when you practice Sila. It brings forth samati as a result. samati paripavita mahapala hoti, panya uh, mahapala hoti mahani sangsa. The cultivation of samati brings forth. Wisdom, as a, its fruit, as the benefit, Panya parivatt Pavitang witan samadeva aswayi we mujati sayati dam gama swa bawa swa Wisdom brings forth its great fruit in the destruction of the defilements, the āsāvās, asavas. the āsāvās asavas are considered as taints or pollutants of the mind. That's one way they describe them. Or sometimes fermentations. They're deeply embedded in our character, in the train of our consciousness for many, many lifetimes and they're constantly fermenting, bubbling up. So for me, when I first read Buddhist books and encountered some of these terms like asawa, that were new, uh, I found these descriptions quite helpful, like when the Buddha said fermentations of the mind. brought up pictures of my father's shed at the back of the house where he used to make Beer and wine. So he's always brewing beer constantly here for many years. And as a little child, I'd go and look at the product of his efforts, and there'd be these big pots of beer fermenting. It's a process that's kind of messy and smelly, and strange colored liquid with strange smells and you'd see the bubbles coming up as different ingredients were added and this would go on for weeks and weeks and weeks so when I read the suttas and the Buddha talked about the asavas as fermentations it made a lot of sense to me just this kind of smelly messy gunky stuff bubbling up in your mind that causes suffering On the night of the of his enlightenment, the Buddha developed three knowledges. Knowledge of the knowledge uh, of past lives, Pupaini-vasanu-satayana, and the knowledge of the arising and passing away of beings according to their karma, uh, due to Papadayana, And then the knowledge of the destruction of the asavas, these fermentations or pollutants of the mind are savakayayana. Kaya means destruction. That's the word they use for the very knowledge that the enlightenment or the awakening experience of the Buddha is. It's a destruction of uh, the the taint, the fermentation of sensuality, sensual desire, kamasava, the destruction of Dhyasava, the taint of becoming, Bhavasava. Becoming is what prepares us for birth. So when the Buddha says, there'll be no more birth for me, samsara is ended, it's because becoming is ended, because becoming is what causes birth. Becoming is the sum total of uh, craving and attachment. Dhanha Upatana Bhava is the cause of birth. Bhava is that, the mental realm of the mind. As we live in the world, if we're not practicing the Dhamma, then we tend to follow craving all the time, desire, for things, wanting things, wanting to get rid of things, wanting to be, wanting to become things craving hardens solidifies into attachment upadana through regularly being affected conditioned by craving our mind forms attachments deeply ingrained attachments clinging to views and the sense of self and this is what conditions Bauer becoming the realm of the mind how we feel what we aspire to so that's what what creates leads us to create more karma so say you aspire to be wealthy it's just as a simple aspiration many people have then your will a lot of your body, speech and mind will be directed towards actions and activities that will generate wealth for you you can get to own property and possessions and money and so on. So bawa is both the product of karma. It's also where we're generating fresh karma, keeping us going and ultimately leads us to be born again. Awijasawa awij, uh, uh, is the, the taint or the pollutant, the f- fermentation of ignorance unknowing, not knowing, not understanding how craving and attachment and becoming leads to suffering, leads to birth, but leads on to suffering. We just don't know, we're not aware of what we're doing and what leads to what. So these are the three asuras, the three fermentations that are constantly bubbling up in our mind. But these are what the Buddha has removed through his practice, through developing deep, penetrating insight into the Four Noble Truths. So Buddhist practice isn't simply to develop kindness and compassion for all beings. It's not simply a stress reduction method, although these qualities we do develop along the way the ultimate aim is complete destruction of the asavas. So the Buddha established the Sangha, the Bhikkhu Sangha, as the the most suitable vehicle for this way of life that will be is most suitable for dealing with and ultimately destroying the asavas. As we know, when the Buddha, after his enlightenment, people who he encountered who had a spiritual affinity and were interested in developing themselves, purifying their minds, finding peace, they would come and listen to the Buddha. And if he saw that their faculties and their abilities, their mind was right, then he would invite them to they say, come bhikkhu, in practice for the end of suffering. He bhikkhu, upasampada, so simply the Buddha inviting somebody would be enough to be become a monk in those days under the guidance of the Buddha, under Nisaya, taking dependence on the Buddha. But as the Sangha grew, then there'd be more formalized ordination procedures so we have our ordination procedure as we do these days. Various rules of requirements according to the Vinaya. But the aim is still the same. is ordaining, becoming a, a renunciant and practicing for the, the destruction of karmaswa, bawaswa, avijasuva. Another word we use for the bhikkhu is the samana. Rumbho used to say a samana is one who is sangop rangap, and sangop means peaceful, rangap means restrained, so one who is peaceful and restrained is a samana. As bhikkhus as Alms mendicants living the monastic life, following the Vinaya, practicing for the destruction of Aswas. We're learning to be peaceful and we're learning to restrain uh, the mental defilements, the Aswas, before we can abandon them and destroy them. First of all, we restrain them. So This is a picture that Gumpacha was giving us, was just our a daily reflection. We're aiming to develop the qualities of peace and restraint. Or we also have the ten recollections of a bhikkhu or of a samana that we chant regularly. Another way to build up the picture of who we are, what we're doing as we develop ourselves for this the ultimate goal of destroying the asawas. The ten reflections of a samana bring up regularly they help to establish in our mind certain values attitudes reflections that help to develop the right kind of qualities that will help us deal with these asavas as the Reflection, I am no longer living according to worldly aims and values. As we know, the aims of the world, society, majority of people in living in the world, is to find health, happiness in the sensual realm, to attain a state where they have enough food, accommodation, clothing, medicine for the sick, the material comforts of life, and then building on that you know, to get more, more refined kinds of sensual happiness or karma or so more kinds of sense pleasure as an expression of our comfort and ease living in the world, the pleasures of the world. If we're honest, you know, the worldly life, the lay life, is generally going in that direction. But when you come into the lay, The bhikkhu life, the life of a samana, we're changing our aims and our values. Our aims are now the destruction of the asavas. So it means the ending of this uh, obsession and addiction and attachment to the senses and the objects of the senses and the pleasures of the senses. Because they're limited and they bring us a lot of pain and suffering and they bind us, as a fetter, they bind us to endless birth and rebirth, and endless states of suffering and despair and disappointment that uh, that we know, you know the lay life is bound up with that. Constantly struggling to compete with others, to earn a living, to get. The kind of sensual pleasure, sensual happiness that we all seek it requires a lot of effort, it's tiring, involves competing with others so it brings us in conflict with others, involves a lot of disappointment because those very pleasures that we seek don't last, they're impermanent in their nature. Our senses can never be totally satisfied so they're constantly agitated because they're never quite at ease with what they've got, they're always looking for more, looking for better, looking for different, or rejecting what they've got because it's not not quite good enough. The attachment to the senses and the seeking of sense pleasures is ultimately it cannot bring us true peace, true happiness. So the Samanas life is setting aside that goal, readjusting our values. Of course, we do need the basic requisites to live, which food and basic, simple accommodation, simple clothing, basic medicines just to get by with. But we're no longer seeking anything much extra, additional. Yeah. So occasionally it comes our way, but it's no longer our aim. Our aim is to develop the spiritual qualities, the paramis, the ten paramis, and the five spiritual powers and spiritual faculties. So our whole way of looking at life begins to change as we practice as a samana. We turn our attention inwards to develop these qualities rather than just material wealth and seeking out sense pleasure. But as a seminar we are totally dependent on the goodwill of society. Although we've set aside the seeking of the material wealth, fame and fortune, we have to remember that everything we have and use is a gift from others. We live because of the goodwill, the compassion of others who share some of what they have with us. We try to develop contentment and fewness of wishes, but nevertheless, every day we need to eat. We do need to use some basic requisites. So a seminary is one who never forgets that. It brings up the reflection of gratitude to others and sensitivity to others. Because we can become a burden to others, we have to be careful what we seek out in terms of material support. Not even, you know, accepting everything we're offered. Sometimes we do, but sometimes we don't. Maybe it's bad for us to accept everything we're offered, or maybe it's a burden on others to, maybe they're offering things beyond their means, or because they have faith, but they haven't really considered what's appropriate, or what they can really cope with in terms of supporting Sangha. So we have to be sensitive to that. You know, we even have rules preventing us from asking you know, unrelated lay people who haven't made an invitation for, for anything. Lumpur Chah used to take that a step further and say, well, just practice not even asking your family for anything. Just as a way of cultivating restraint, restraint of gama so developing contentment. Really learning to purify your mind, recognize greed, desire, attachment when it arises, and see what you can do to reduce it and ultimately abandon it. You know, we have to consider these things. Another of those reflections, you know. Samana is one who strives to abandon their former habits. So again, it's linked to our lay life When you come in to live in the monastery. We're not here to earn an income or to become famous or powerful or influential. We're here to purify our mind from the Asavas, to destroy the Asavas. So it requires us to change certain habits We all come into the monastery, we've got a whole accumulation of different habits, and many of them have been actually to support the accumulation of the asavas, to support sensual desire. Actually, feeding our own ignorance. You know, the coarsest kind of habits we give up say, something like drinking, or taking drugs, or gambling obsessions with things addictions to certain certain things entertainments and so on or maybe just obsession with endlessly working to earn more money but these are actually feeding our ignorance not feeding mindfulness and wisdom necessarily they're just feeding more unwholesome states of mind and more suffering that's the coarsest kind but even somebody has a foundation in sealant before they come into the monastery, they may still have more refined kinds of habits that they still have to change. You know, we come into the monastery, we're celibate, so we give up the whole part of life devoted to the promotion of sexuality, whether it's just looking and watching things that stimulate our sexual desire, the way we relate to other people. There's a whole new set of habits we take on as a samana. One who is restrained, mindful, celibate. one who is peaceful, the one who is non-violent. So we give up the old habits of maybe arguing to get what we want manipulating the truth arguing using force through our words or our speech so we don't argue or we don't shout or try and bully other people to get what we want as a seminar we go in the other way the other direction developing the habits of restraint patience compassion kindness this is what most of us have already in our, our minds, our mind's eye, you know, The idea of a samana is somebody who is living peacefully, celibate, non-violent life. And most people in the world also have that same idea. So it requires us to change our habits of behavior, change our values. And it requires striving you know, to strive, we have to to change a habit requires a lot of effort you have to recognize what habits need to be changed and then put effort into that, that change to affect that change. Changing patterns of speech, patterns of behavior and ultimately patterns of thinking. You have to use a lot of wise reflection, So Manasikara. reflecting back on our behavior of body, speech and mind to see what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, what's leading to more suffering, what's leading and supporting the arising of the factors of the path, Sela, Samadhi and panya. This is the hardest of all, the changing of mental habits because they're so fast and so quick, so fast, so subtle. It requires ever more effort to develop mindfulness and then discernment, reflecting back on our own mental habits, changing those that are leading to more suffering and despair and developing the habits that will lead to our own happiness and well-being. We have the reflection on does regret in my mind arise, arise over my conduct? You know, constantly as a samana, you're reflecting on your conduct. As you're changing your habits, you reflect, is, is my conduct in line with the Dhamma, with the Vinaya? Maybe in the beginning that's simply just am I following the rules? Am I doing what I'm supposed to do as a samana, as a monk, one in training? you are also looking at the consequences you know, when we give in to unwholesome ways of body, speech, and mind. As we become aware of that, there's usually some regret, some sadness, or guilt as we remember what we might have said and done. And as we're practicing, I mean, our aim is to develop the path, and the fruits of the path are a sense of well-being peace happiness so that regret is a sign it's a, a wake-up call saying, mm, what i'm doing is maybe going in the wrong direction this is a habit or a way of thinking or a way of acting or speaking that i must change the feeling of regret points you to where you need to change so there has to be that introspection turning attention back to reflect on our own behavior but we also have one additional uh, support and that's the sangha. So we also have the reflection, would my friends find fault with my conduct? One of the advantages of living in sangha is that you quickly get reflections on your behavior. If you break a rule, maybe another monk will notice it and tell you. Or just being around other samanas makes you more mindful. More aware, as you see how they behave, you reflect back on yourself, you become more sharp, more astute in watching your behavior, assessing it, whether it's correct for a samana or not. On a deeper level, we have the reflection that we're, we will, we are bound to separate from everything that we love and like. It's a reflection to bring up every day. Because again, it helps us to change our values, the direction of our mind, our thinking, our life. The lay life, you tend to be hoping and building your life, hoping it will last forever. We invest in work, possessions, property. We have a family, maybe relationships. We invest in our country, our society. And although, although there may be some merit and wholesome activities in all that, ultimately it's all impermanent, doesn't last. And we forget, and that's a big source of our suffering. As a Samana, every day we're remembering nothing lasts. This body won't last. Even the states of happiness from Samadhi, the good feelings we have from living with other good people, the good actions we do that generate merit, generate a good feeling, it's all subject to change because this body is subject to change and ultimately we have to face death. So the Samana is constantly reflecting on that so they don't get lost in the world, They're not drunk with the world, wishing things would last forever or hoping for building up aspirations and goals that are just impossible to achieve because nothing lasts. So a seminar is constantly waking up to the truth, constantly sobering up, understanding that really this world is a it's a delusion and we can't find real happiness in the world. They turn away from looking for happiness in the world because they know everything that I love and like ultimately will depart from me. Helps us to clear up any bad feeling with other people. What's the point of holding on to bad feeling? One day we must die, that person must die. So for a Samana to hold a revenge, have revenge, seek revenge, have a vendetta against another person, makes no sense if you're reflecting in this way. It's in our own interest just to give up our anger, our hatred, even for people who harm us and give us trouble. We're willing to drop it because we know nothing lasts. There's no point holding on to a grudge. We reflect on our karma. You know, I'm the owner of my karma. Heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide, supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, good or for good or for ill, that I will be the heir. Every day reflecting on karma, again, makes you mindful, makes you aware of your habits of body, speech and mind, looking and learning from the process of cause and effect. Sometimes we wonder, when will I become wise? When will I understand the Dhamma? Well, just reflecting on karma every day makes you wise, because you can see what leads to what. You become familiar with the nature of unwholesome karma and the nature of wholesome karma. It leads directly on to the, making the effort to abandon unwholesome karma and develop wholesome karma. And this is undermining avijja asava, the fermentation of ignorance because you're becoming clear how things work in your life as you relate to the world around you, as you relate to yourself, you relate to others. You learn to understand what karma is supporting the path, the practice of the path, what karma is taking you away from the path and start acting accordingly. You know, we've suffered for so many lifetimes and even just in this lifetime we've suffered so much. Why create the causes for more suffering? as you reflect on karma you begin to drop those habits those ways that lead to more pain suffering for yourself for others and you develop the ways that lead to more happiness more good outcomes good fortune for yourself and for others but at the same time it gives rise to compassion as a seminar we are leaders of the religion we're the ones that people often look to for guidance, for example, for advice. So as we reflect on karma, then we gain compassion. Understand that the people around us are still suffering in different ways. And we respond with compassion. Just as we are suffering, others are suffering. And we can see the causes are coming through karma. Karma. So we can give people advice and encouragement to make more good karma and abandon the bad karma, give up those, those habits so that they can be free. Another reflection of the seminar is just that awareness of impermanence, how time is passing, Every day, the days and nights are endlessly passing, how well am I spending my time? Or sometimes Ajahn Chah would say, what am I doing right now, today, here and now, how am I spending my time? Even if you're on your own in the forest, your mind can be miles away and be caught up in some fantasy or delusion that's of no use to anyone. So regularly reflecting, how well am I spending my time? How much effort am I putting into the practice? Am I making good use of my time? As a seminar, we have a lot of quiet time when we're on our own. It's very easy to become heedless, to sleep too much, to let the time just slip by, (coughs) not doing much of much benefit. So constantly reflecting that this could be the last day of my life. As long as we haven't yet reached Nibbāna, we haven't completed the destruction of these Asavas, then there's always more that we have to practice, more to do. It's one of the qualities of the the Bodhisattva, who aims for Nibbāna, for the out of for the benefit of all beings, is so they're never content with what they they've achieved so far as long as the mind is still under the influence of the defilements, the aswas, then they're never content. So we can't be content with what we've achieved. You know, sometimes we have a, we might feel oh I have enough material support, I have enough friends, things are comfortable, I don't need to need to do much in one sense that's true we do have to develop a sense of contentment in the practice but on a higher sense it's not true is it? we've still got more that we have to put effort into we have to develop ourselves we have to be more refined in our awareness and investigate the Dhamma more understand recognize kilesas, greed, anger, delusion and uproot them from our experience there's always still more to be done One thing that supports that is periods of solitude. So we have the reflection, do I delight in solitude or not? So we come to live in the monastery, we're given a kuti. Whether it's a kuti we like or not, the environment is what we like or not, it's perfect or not, it's not really the point. The point is that it's a place to be quiet. Even though we interact with other people every day, we do certain group activities and we receive food from the laity, we have to be able to make use of times of solitude. Physical solitude, going into a kuti, using that time on your own in the forest to sit, to walk, to meditate, train your mind. Then also mental solitude. Solitude from they say solitude from the five hindrances and learning to develop the meditation so you can drop the sleepiness and the doubts and the worries and the anger and the different kinds of sensual desire. And really get some mental solitude where the mind becomes calm and still, one pointed so that you can contemplate in a more refined way on the Dhamma. So we're learning to appreciate solitude, even to love solitude, not in an obsessive way or an addictive way, but using it as a necessary factor for training the mind to let go of the world and the desires, the attachments for the world. The last one is sometimes considered the hardest reflection for the samra. Have I developed any, free, any insight, or freedom from the defilement, so that at the end of my life I may not feel ashamed when questioned by my spiritual companions? So most of us don't feel we've attained what we've set out to attain yet, we haven't achieved what we wish to achieve yet, so if we were to ask what have we gained from our practice, we usually pretty humble and don't feel so good about what we've attained This may be a good way a good starting point better than being deluded and think you've attained a lot or overestimate what you've achieved in the practice but we should also look, learn to look at our practice in a balanced way if we've got to the point where we have faith and interest in the teachings that we've come forth to stay in a monastery even just for a few days or we've got to the point that we want to ordain as a monk that already is an achievement it's not a small thing most people will never get to that point in their life very few people become monks and nuns in this world so it's something to be happy about but then to build on it to recognize well there's still more to practice there's still more deeper insights that I have to develop the causes of suffering these asavas and kilesas are still there in my in my mind so there's more I have to do but we've all attained insight at least in some small ways we've all had an insight into the impermanent nature of this world we've all gained some nibida some sense of being tired of just seeking sense pleasure over and over again making money experiencing the pleasures of the world we've all to some extent turned away from that already and seen the impermanence of it and the lack of self in it so already we've attained something but now we have to build on that and deepen that insight and really get to the point where we can see the impermanent nature of this body, this mind, our senses, our thoughts, our feelings, all the experiences we have in this world are temporary, and what's temporary or impermanent cannot be taken as a self, as they're always changing on us. Everybody we know changing. One day we must separate. Everything we own changes, degenerates, one day we must separate. The insight into impermanence and not-self is what really liberates the mind. And Whenever we're peaceful in our meditation, even just for a few minutes, it's already a sense of just seeing the emptiness of these things that we're so used to grasping at and identifying with. If you're still in your meditation, you're peaceful, then even this feeling of the body can drop away. The mind is so still and peaceful you just can't even feel your body. You're not looking at anything, not hearing anything, not thinking anything, you're just knowing. Knowing the, the refined state of mind that you're in at that time. So when we meditate we get a, at least a partial insight into the temporary nature of these five candles, this body, the feelings, the thoughts and of course all the other things of the world surrounding us. So you build on that insight keep reflecting on it developing wisdom and experiencing some of the emptiness of the world. When we see emptiness it's not brings us depression or unhappiness it's actually very peaceful. Emptiness of Grasping emptiness of self. So our teachers encouraged us to use these reflections of the seminar every day. Bring them up. Helps to guide you, gives you a system of training, a way of training that you can use your time in the monastery well for your long-term benefit, for the benefit of others. Ultimately, to completely destroy the arsuas, these mental fermentations or pollutants that causes suffering. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.